Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Ronnie Schneider. Ron Ronnie Schneider got his start in the music business working as an accountant in the office of his uncle, Alan Klein. While with Klein, Ronnie learned the business working with artists like Sam Cooke, Neil Sedaka, and Bobby Vinton. Ultimately, he wound up being assigned to work on Klein's overhaul of the Beatles business at Apple Records. But most epically, Ron was the tour manager for the Rolling Stones from 1965 through 1970. 1965 was the year of satisfaction, the international breakthrough hit for the Stones. By the end of Ron's tenure in 1970, they were the greatest rock and roll band in the world, and many of the myths we know them for today were firmly established. Ronnie wrote a book about his time in rock and roll called Out of Our Heads, The Rolling Stones, The Beatles, and Me. Not only does his book tell his own story so well, it is filled with fascinating ephemera like contracts, telegrams, and personal correspondence from the artist he worked with. If you're a student of the business or just love that era of music, Ron's book is a fascinating read. Hi, LP here. When COVID-19 hit, the doors to independent venues across the country closed. Attending live concerts stopped. Independent venues and promoters from every state in the U.S. are banding together to fight for survival. They were the first to close and will be the last to reopen. And the fact is, many of them, our neighborhood venues, are at risk of closing their doors forever. If you want to get involved, more information is available online with the hashtag SaveOurStages. This message is brought to you by Neva, a 501c6. And now, my talk with Ronnie Schneider. It happens to be that Chipmunk got totally upset because of the fact that there's this, the image that he thinks it originally came from. I'll have to show you if I get it ready in a second. So how are you meanwhile? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about you? Are you um, yours okay in this uh, crazy American drama? Well, not liking people that much, this is fine for me. I actually love it. The only difference for me is not being able to walk into the stores and do all the things I usually do. But otherwise, I have no problem. <laughs> okay. You ever see that picture? Oh, amazing. No, I don't think I have. Beatles. Before the Stones picture. Get out of town. Illustrated works of the Beatles. Wow. Now, we went, Chip went to the, the, the artist and said, listen, you know, this is obviously, you know, screwed up. You guys, you should be getting the acclaim for all of this. And he said he didn't care. He didn't want to be involved with all of the thing that's going on. So at the end, after talking to him and all that, Chip let it go. And I let it go. But I always sit there and say, if you see it, the, I'll send you the image later. But it's from the, I think, I forget which one. I don't know if it's, it's one of the Beatles songs, but that's all I can tell you. That's really incredible, isn't it? Yeah, no, it really is, but it's also typical. Look, I, I have a little loyalty to the Stones. I was with them seven years, but I was there during all the competitions with the Beatles, the, the, the Satanic Majesty's cover. You know, come on. So all these things tie on. I thought it was quite interesting at the time. But remember, the Beatles gave them their first song. Anyhow, they got listed. So um, first of all, thank you for making time. The package arrived Saturday when I got back from vacation with the book. And uh, I spent as much time as I could uh, between Saturday and this morning trying to cram. Actually, right, right where I got to in the book is when uh, you and Alan uh, parted ways, when he gave you the, uh, the my birthday or today. Right. 
<laughs> choice. So I don't want to um, I don't want to go through everything that's in the book, but I would love to go through a little bit um, of your story to set some context. If that's okay. No problem. Um, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Miami. I was born in Newark, New Jersey. Where you know, born in Newark, and then actually couldn't stand the weather. And when I was about two, we moved down to Florida, and then moved around. But it was uh, grew up mainly in Florida, which I think is a great thing. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> um, it's 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 the reverse for um, usually. The New York Jews retire in Miami. They don't. <laughs> Just wait. I've still got time. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And so you, in your book, you said you went to University of Miami? Yes. I, like I said, I grew up, I did most of my schooling in Florida. I went to the University of Miami. And during the last two years, during the summers, I went up to New York to work with my uncle, mm -hmm. Alan Klein. One thing that was clear was that you were enamored of the entertainment part of the entertainment industry. So you talked about going to see Bobby Vinton and watching how um, your uncle helped him build the show and create the show. Um, but I wonder, were, were you a music fan or were you a fan of the whole thing? Well, I was never an amoured of any of it. I was never a music fan. The only thing I liked music for was dancing and making out. And to me, it was all the memories. It was like those significant moments. Like finally, when I left in 65, the last song I was dancing to before I went to New York was uh, Satisfaction. And having no idea who the Stones were. Movies, I had no idea who distributors were. I didn't care about any of that stuff. I basically was good at numbers. I wanted to survive. And so I was going towards becoming an accountant, figuring that if I worked with numbers and cash, it would rub off. I'd be able mm -hmm. to get some, at least you were there at the source. So that's what I originally was doing, having no idea about entertainment, didn't know what Alan did. At the time, I was being pursued by one of the big accounting companies to be an auditor, and they were going to travel me all over the world. So then, and that's basically what I was looking at. No idea about entertainment, didn't care. Yeah. And so Alan was um, at that point just getting into artist management, or can you, can you give it, I don't want to make this too much about him, but could you set me a little context for like where he was at in his career and how he got started in music? When, when I went up in 65, he was already, he had Bobby Vinton already and he had just gotten, I'm sorry, 65. I went up originally in 64, 63 and four. Bottom line is when I was first up there, he was working with Bobby Vinton. Then he got Sam Cooke and he was really into management at that time. Before then he was just doing audits and record company, things like that. But he got into negotiating the deals for Vitton and, and Sam, and he did a great job. He was hardcore. And that's why the artists loved him at the beginning and made them a lot of money that they usually didn't get. And he really loved Sam. And that also at the time for Black, as we're doing with all the Black Lives Matter, he was on top of it before then. Alan wasn't a racist and took it, made sure that they didn't take advantage of the Black acts if they were on his side. Yeah. And he was trained as an accountant? Yes. He was an accountant. He lived in New York, I think, up on North, uh, up, uptown New York, I think 181st Street, Cabrini Boulevard. I remember the first places we visited him. And uh, yeah, so he started out as an accountant, and I just went in there as a bookkeeper accountant when I started. Yeah. And was he, um, how long had he been in music at that point? Do you know? Like, what? I have no idea. All I know is actually... When I first started to see him, he was making movies. He, he was with uh, Tony Anthony, and he did uh, 
something. I, I think he won some kind of award that I think they paid for <laughs> at the time <laughs> in Cannes. I think, it, I think it cost 10 grand to buy the Royal Palm or whatever it was at the Palm d'Or. That's what it was. But I remember the hearing rumors. I'm not sure. But the end result was he was in the movie business at the start. And he was also working with the Axe. And he was dealing with all these other ones at the time. But once again, it's so long ago, I can't remember totally. Yeah. So one thing um, I wanted to ask you about, and I've, I've wondered this about, um, about Alan, and it sort of it blurred into your book as well, which was today the distinction amongst the people in most artists' camps is very clear. You know, you have a personal manager, you have an attorney, you have a business manager. It's always seemed to me that, that Alan, and by extension in some of your work, there was a blurring of the business manager and personal manager role. Am I misperceiving that? Or did all these acts also have personal representation? I've never noticed a real difference because of the fact that if you're a business manager, you got to be a personal manager if you know talent in any way in the world, because no matter what you're going to try and do, it gets personal with them because you're with them. So I've never, I've always, for me, titles have always been a horrible thing because I'm an accountant. Yet when I was on the road, I watched security, I collected the money, I was with the boys, everything. I just think titles, you know, maybe help people categorize what they do. But if you're a really hard worker, titles don't mean anything. It's actually yeah. what you do. And that's what I did. I think, I think I was friendly with the groups because they knew that, first of all, I didn't judge them. I never, you know, you could do whatever you want to do. I didn't care. I didn't judge. And the other thing was I always had their back. The Stones knew that you, as a little guy, I always have to react violently right away because I'm little. If the big guy gets a hit in first, I'm in trouble. So I always react intensely. And I think they always liked that they knew I had their back and I would use it for them. You mentioned that concept a few times in the book. What did that mean in practice? It, it sounds to a certain extent um, it's whatever the situation required. Um, is that fair? It requires whatever the situation requires above and beyond, too. It's because sometimes things get physical, especially when you're in mobs and crowds and all that and you have a lot of fans. So if you're one who just, oh, can't take it and run away, forget it. But if you jump in front of them and block somebody from hitting them, they understand where you're coming from. And I think that, that's in any kind of any business you're in, but somebody that's willing to sacrifice for you, they, they respect somebody that respects your relationship that much. Yeah. Before I, before I uh, pivot more directly into your story, there's one last thing I wanted to ask you about Alan Klein, which was the, the handful of people I know that um, interacted with him or knew him, it, it seems like he, he, was a, he was a bit of a contradiction. I, I guess, you know, in so much as we all are, but people had, uh, the, the, the same person could hold very extreme positions on him of like um, being very critical of, of, you know, how hard-nosed he was um, in negotiations and, you know, even to the point of feeling sort of screwed or, 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 or really taken by him. But at the same time, these, this weird, strange loyalty or, or admiration that people felt for him. Can you help thread that at all? Can you help explain what that was about? Maybe, I don't know. But I listened to your interview of Andrew Oldham, who I love. I love Andrew from those days and the things I remember with him. And the thing that always struck me about Andrew was when we went to Alan's The Funeral, and Andrew came up to talk of all the people that I thought might have negative things to say because, you know, the stones were gone from Andrew to Alan and all that. I thought it would be Andrew. But Andrew fought the UK press and actually came out 
defining the fact that the reason he really liked Alan was because he made the money for them that nobody else could at the time. And because of that, it overweighed all the other things. And so he, he said Alan was great and he loved him at the, at the time of Alan's funeral. It was a little different, I heard, when you talked to him this time. But it's like anything else. I think nothing is black and white. Nothing, you know, that's why I quit law. I, I minored in law for a short time. And the reason I ended up quitting that was because it's not black and white. It's not, oh, wait, no, I'm right. Here it is. No, 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 no. It's personality. It's people's perception. It's all kinds of other things. And that's what you're talking about also. So nothing's black and white. The same guys, that the Stones can curse him for saying that he screwed him over are still thankful that he did what he did to get them the piece of chunk of money that he got them and the leverage that he got them. Same thing with the Beatles. And, and Alan, I can define as this. Alan, he used to always sit there and say he went to an orphanage and therefore he was a survivor from somebody that went to an orphanage. And my mother used to say, yeah, he was in the orphanage for a couple of weeks, but he had that mindset. And so as a survivor, he always made sure that he got taken care of so he didn't get screwed over again. And that's how I always look at Alan and the things yeah. that went on. Yeah, yeah. And so in a lot of ways, um, he was sort of there um, as either a pivotal figure or certainly in the, in the brew of people that, that sort of dragged the music industry into a bit more of the modern era, the beginning of the modern era. And I think people credit the work you did on the 69 Stones tour with really modernizing the rock and roll business. Before we get to that, could you give us a little bit of the, um, the foundation story of how you first came into the, the, the orbit of the Stones? Yeah. Like I said, I came to New York during the summers when I was in college to work. And in 65, I graduated and I came up to New York to stay there forever. Alan didn't have the Stones at that time. Like I said, I was in Miami. I danced to satisfaction. I come to New York. I go in the back room where I do all the numbers and adding. And then the Stones were in the office. I met them on the boat. We went to the Beatles thing. But once again, I happen to be lucky. I don't honor celebrity. I don't care about it. To me, that means nothing. It's just words. And you see how fast people tear them down. So when I met the Stones, it was just a couple of guys my age. And we hung out and laughed about dumb things that all college guys do. And that was it originally. And then on the day that they were starting the tour in 65, my uncle called me and said, come into the, he said, oh, by the way, you're going on the road with the Stones and representing me in the box office. Just like that. The day it was happening is the day that I was going on my first plane flight, my first thing on the road with the Stones, and, and my first venture into a box office, which I had no idea what went on in box office. And all those things I had to learn on the fly. And so that was my first learning experience and how I got started in rock and roll and how I started with the Stones. And I got to sit there, as we all identified with one another, the other things that I think the Stones liked was they first treated me very skeptically. Brian Jones, major, I mean, here I was the nephew of their business manager and immediately was, uh, you know, he doesn't know anything, it's just a flaky job thing. And then when they saw me work hard and like I said, get in there and fight for them and be the first guy pushing away the people to get, that's when we became closer and closer. And then those nights when you'd fly in on the road, it was, you know, you do a show, leave and go into another date and at two in the morning arrive in Pensacola, you know, some little town and have to find food. And all those little moments, I think in 65, synced our relationship for as long as it lasted. You know, they yeah. knew I was there for them and they were there for me. Yeah, I thought you, you painted a really good picture that a lot of people either 
don't remember or never knew in the first place, which was this sort of this smaller America where you would roll into a town um, in the middle of the night and there was literally nothing. <laughs> you know, there was no notion of, you know, 24 hour convenience. And as you said, you know, at best, you might find a greasy spoon where the locals would be or the truckers would be coming through or what have you. And it was just a, a completely different idea that you could have a national touring entity in 65, 66. And, um, there, you know, there just wasn't the infrastructure that there is today. There was another factor. The stones were banned from a lot of the good hotels at that time. We had a battle trying to get into different places because they wouldn't allow this, you know, rock and roll. It's horrible people. So that was a battle in and of itself. We'd be little motels. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, um, I, I think another, another piece that shines through um, is that to a certain extent, some of the, um, I guess the mythology or the stereotypes within the band are sort of confirmed by you as a firsthand person. So Mick being very concerned with the business and the production and Keith being just so about the music and Brian being, you know, sort of emotionally hurt and, and, and needy Bill sort of always being on the make and, <laughs> and, on the prowl, um, and, and Charlie being sort of, you know, the, the sort of rock and, and, and the, the devoted husband. Um, I think those those are themes we hear about them a lot. Is there anything all that? about? Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, is there anything about the band collectively or as individuals that you know or that you learned that really defies some of the stereotypes about them? Well, one of them would be that they had groupies every night like crazy. That would only be Bill. That wasn't a case of the case with the Stones. They were always creating and working. I, you know, Mick and Keith were always writing music and working were on the road. They didn't have time really for that kind of stuff. And Charlie, you know, most of the things that I describe are the way that they were. And that's the way the guys were all the time. You know, it's like any group of guys, five guys together. It would be those little silly things where two of the guys would come over and Ron, let's don't let Bill know we're going to go do this or, you know, don't tell Brian we're going here. And it would always be the typical dynamic with guy. And you'd always, I'd have to balance my loyalty and be careful that anybody didn't think, Oh no, no, your favorite, you know, nobody wanted me to favor Mick. So I had to be very careful about that. And it was, you know, especially Keith. So it was, you know, I don't know what else I could clarify on those things, except the, the it's mostly true that the way they fit into those dynamics. Yeah. And you don't talk about it too much in the book, but um, what what role did you and Alan have to play during some of their troubles around the Redlands bus and some of the things that Brian was going through? Were you guys there during that? And did you have to get them through that to any extent? Absolutely. I mean, uh, see, Alan, the one thing they never say about Alan is, is Alan, if you're working with Alan, it's family. And so no matter what happened, he was there like a family person would be to support. But he goes beyond support. He got them the top lawyers or Queen's counsels, as they say. And he was there just moral support and anything he could do business-wise, press-wise. We had different press guys, you know, doing all that. And it was just the times were changing. That was, you know, they, they, everybody felt that they were really railroading Mick because of the pills and the, all those things that were going on. And hey, it's only sex and drugs and we're not hurting anybody else. It was all the way out at Redlands. So the end result was Alan and I were always there to secure them, even with me getting Brian into the Hilton and then wanting to throw him out of the Hilton and me fighting with them over that and then being there with him when he cried himself to sleep. He was a shambles after the second bust. But that's things that, you know, like I said, we're in a meeting and he comes over and kisses me on the top of my head. They felt that way that you were there helping them 
when other people were out there for their money, as opposed to trying to actually help them when they had a problem. Yeah. And, and Keith talks about this a lot. Um, but being in London at that time, especially during that sort of 66, 67, 68 era, were they sort of public enemy number one? Were they really as persecuted and sort of like, were they, were, were, were the authorities after them to prove a point or was that just sort of the, the, the guys feeling like they needed to be outlaws? Like what, what's the, can you pierce that mythology at all? Well, not being in the mindset of the UK cops or anything like that, but I, I, I believe that was the case. They were after them. Remember, they wanted to set an example of rock and roll people to quell the rebellion. So, you know, they tried that when they put Mick and Keith in jail, you know, for sentencing for years for what was going on. So when the public rebelled saying, wait, this is unfair, then I think they started easing off. But they, they, there is documented history that they were pursuing Brian, I believe, and Keith. And I think there was a couple of constables that were always after him. And that's just human nature. I mean, I believe it. I wasn't there to see it and validate, but I, I could sense the paranoia. And I'm sure they did come from, they did get busted. You know? So as opposed yeah. to leaving them alone. I mean, they could have busted Keith Moon 400 million times, but you know, they didn't seem to go after, I don't know, maybe they did, but there were other people. They didn't get the attack that Mick and Keith got originally from the UK. Yeah, it, 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 there, it seems particularly savage um the way they picked up on brian's vulnerability and really just went after the guy um yeah it's very unfair i mean to to take somebody in his in his condition and to repeatedly just hammer away at him it was like and finding look, at, weak yeah, look at paul and john paul mccartney john lennon they weren't pure but well you don't hear they weren't going after no no it was definitely biased against the rock and rollers as opposed yeah. to the you know mommy the, the band that your mother loved yeah well it's interesting you talked about the the generation gap a couple of times and one thing that i hadn't realized um you know and this was just my own misperception or myth making was that i always thought of um alan klein as like a perpetually like middle-aged or older guy you know what i mean but he wasn't really that much older than you, and he wasn't really that much older than them, you know, 10, 12 years or so. Yeah, and, 10, 15 um, years. But I guess at that time, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years must have seemed dra more dramatic than it was. I think the use of drugs makes it more dramatic and the lack of using drugs. Alan was ultra straight, clean, and I did drugs with the boys. So there, there was the difference. Uh, they could see, they could come to me and we could relate and then they could deal with Alan. That's exactly, I think that was the leveraging point. Alan was the dad, even though it was only 10 or 15 years, Alan was the dad taking care of the business and we were still the kids and we were yeah. kids. Yeah. And so uh, I, just to wrap up the, the sort of the, the foundation part of the story, you go out on the road with the band after really not being with, with uh with alan for that long you go out in 65 you're in the box office clearly a super important job on any tour to this day settling dealing with the promoters um why you <laughs> well i think i was uh, the stones got along with me remember i told you we went to the beatles thing and i hung around with them and they liked me i went out to the clubs with them and all that and you know when we went into the Beatles, it was me who screamed out to get Alan to come in with us because <laughs> he was the old guy. It was I was in with Mick and Keith with all those things in mind. I don't know. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's fate or timing or what have you. I had the right disposition 
and the right mindset. When I was in school, I kind of, I, I get the top test for the accountants and I get some level two exam. And the, and the professor in the University of Miami didn't believe it <laughs> originally. He kept thinking I cheated because everybody, because I joke around and I have a sense of humor and they never figure a really smart guy is a wise guy. And I was always a bit of a wise guy, a sarcastic tease, as we'd say. And so because of that, people downplayed how smart I was. And then in school, when I got the highest score in the accounting class, the teacher came forward in our class, my, my friends are still around now, and apologized. He said, you know, Ron, I always thought that you cheated <laughs> and you really weren't the one, but you got the highest grade. And I said, that's because I know who to cheat from. <laughs> and that was how it went. See, that gives you it all in the... But bottom line is, I don't know what did it, but it just worked out right. I enjoyed the numbers in the box office. I didn't mind confrontation. I wasn't shy when it came to that. And I had their back. So I think that's why it worked out. That's why I stayed with them. That's why they got me in 69, I think. Yeah, let's, let's jump forward to that. So one thing that um, uh, was a bit of a, a new revelation for me was, was really that the, the, the business model for the 69 tour was, much, was born much more of necessity than I realized. So the band and I guess Mick and you and you had a vision about bringing the complete production and the complete show into each market, as opposed to just for the benefit of our listeners at the time, counting on the local promoter to maybe package or to provide sound and lights or to, you know, to take care of um, various elements of the production and just pay the band. Um, you guys went in with a different concept and a different model, but you had to, you had to break out of the the sort of fee or minimum guarantee model, really because you needed advanced advanced cash flow to stage the tour and to build the production you wanted to build. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the run up to the '69 tour? Sure. On the run up to the '69 tour, I left Abco. <laughs> I didn't know anything was going on at the time. It was something with my uncle and I, and the end result was after seven years of being there, I decided that yeah, well, it was decided for me when Alan was ignoring me. I left, so there was nothing going on with the tour with me in '69. When I left, a few weeks after I left, I don't remember how long it was. I got a phone call from Mick. And he was working on Ned Kelly shooting in Australia. He says, I don't mean to bother you, but we've decided we want you to do the tour, the 69 tour. And I said, well, you know, I'm no longer working at ABCO. I'm not, not going to be doing the tour. And they said, no, no, we want you to do the tour. Will you do it? And I just said, we needed my uncle's approval. The end result is, bottom line is, I got my uncle's approval. He also was fired. But put all that aside. So when I went in to do the tour, number one, it was me. There was nobody else. I didn't have a company. I didn't have other people. I didn't have lawyers. I had no organization. I was home in the bedroom with our newly born baby. So there was, I didn't know what was going on. Anyhow, they said, go ahead and do it. I contacted promoters. Everybody contacted me. The bottom line was we were building these. But the whole idea of this one entity for the show was 100% the Rolling Stones. They were sick of going and doing venues with the acts before them, had no, no business being there with the type of talent they were. They wanted to package the whole thing with acts that they wanted to see as well. Ike and Tina Turner, you know, Chuck Berry, all these different little acts. They asked me, well, not Chuck Berry at the time, but I, you know, all these different people, they asked me to get them. And we were negotiating it as it was going along. Then luckily, before I had gotten involved, Alan had done a deal with William Morris, the talent agency, to book the tour. So William Morris contacted me because Alan no longer had the tour and they wanted me to, they wanted to come on and do it. 
And I said, well, I would let them do it for half the usual fee because I've been working on it. And two, I needed some money because I had nothing to go on to do it. So they said, okay, well, you'll have to talk to the financial guy. We'll get you money and whatever. We'll do it for seven and a half percent. Don't tell anybody. That's how the tour was starting. The Stones, meanwhile, brought in Chipmunk, who was going to do the staging and lighting and everything. And they were creating this monster tour to go along that, as Chip, you would say, would be like, uh, you know, the ice capades. It would be train loads of equipment and all this other stuff involved. And it was going to cost a lot of money. And everybody was doing it for love at the beginning. Nobody was saying anything about money yet. Chip was doing it all. They were talking to all the different people. But now they were getting ready to commit to acts. And talent agents don't take words. They want cash for their talent. So we couldn't commit to any of the group to do it. So I need to get money. So I contacted Maze, I took William Morris, and they basically said that they would advance this money. They gave me $15,000. And that was, that, wouldn't, that was only going to cover the plane flight to bring the stones in. That's all that was going to do. Meanwhile, they said, look, we're going to give you the contract. You approve the contract we're sending out to the promoters that we're doing the deals with. And I gave them the, they had to do 50% advance. We're scaling the house, all these things that are details that are too much now. But the end result was when they gave me that contract, here's those moments of fate. <laughs> okay. At the, when they gave me that contract, I look at it and it said, make out the guarantee check to William Morris Agency. And I just drew a line through that and said, make it out to Stone Promotions Limited, which was my company in the U.S., not trying to hide anything. I just did that. Bottom line is a couple of weeks later, I got the phone call from William Morris that they had the checks, but I had to endorse them over to him. I went in there and they gave me about $150,000 worth of checks. And I thanked them and put them in my pocket and left <laughs> and <laughs> used those checks to fund the beginning of the tour. And so, and, and as I left William Morris agency, they said, listen, if you don't do any of the first four concerts, we're all out of business forever. You know, that was the bottom line they had. They figured they'd sue, but bottom line, that's how the tour all started. And, you know, that's all I could say about that. It was just freaky luck. Yeah. It's funny. You're also reinforcing another point, which I think um, Andrew talked about as well. Um, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you, um, you're so self-effacing about something that really wound up in changing the live music business, had no real precedent at the time. Yet what you're not saying is we went in with this mastermind plan <laughs> and we rolled it out across the country and we bent the world to our will um, there were all these little happenstance events that, that taken in total um, created a new model. Um, but it was really just a lot of hustle. Well, I'll define it easily as my mindset. I'm an accountant. So when they said you're doing the tour, I had done the previous tours, even though I didn't do the contracts. And what I knew was that you fill up, you fill up an entire stadium if you say Rolling Stones. And so if I'm filling up an entire stadium, let's split the money down the middle that we're making here. The promoters don't have to spend that much to get And I knew the numbers that I could make sure with the way I was structuring it. The, the promoters would come away with a 10% profit, which is what they hope for anyhow, if they make any profit. So no matter what, they would get a 10%. That's how I was structuring in my head. We also set the ticket prices because the promoters wanted to scalp it and actually really charge high prices. That's why later on where all the rumor of us overcharging for the tickets got me upset because at the very beginning, the Stones wanted to make sure nobody, none of the fans got screwed over. Everything the Rolling Stones ever did was for the fans. 
to make them happy, to do it all good and all that. They wouldn't have seating behind them on the concerts, which would have made us all a lot more money. They didn't want to have anybody sitting where anything would block their view. I mean, they really did things. And then to hear press come out saying, oh, no, the Stones are screwed. That always got me very upset. It took 50 years to have that straightened out. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I think that um – you know, to this day, people will say to me, oh, you know, the Stones are touring again. I can't believe they're, they're going back out. Or who, who would pay that kind of money for a Stones ticket? And I always tell people, they charge that much money because they're worth it. The Stones don't do anything half-assed. You will get an amazing production. You will get amazing sound. You will get Mick. You will get Keith. You'll, you know, like, it's, it's, not, it's not a paint-by-numbers uh, night out. Um, and if, if you got to believe, but if you believe that band delivers and they defy logic, they defy expectation. It makes no sense that they're able to do what they do. It makes Mick turned 77 yesterday. It makes no sense. It makes no <laughs> sense that they, that they're able to do what they do at the level they do it at. But I truly believe them when Keith says, you know, I would stop doing it if I couldn't do it. It's, it's not about the money. Um, or as Bill Graham would say, it's not about the money. It's about the money. <laughs> you know, like they, they, they do it because they can. And they do it because they, they have an, an integrity about it. And yeah, they leave with a pretty penny. But nobody's getting ripped off along the way. I truly believe that the Rolling Stones deliver. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they do. I mean, I think the ticket prices are ridiculous, but everything's gone up. Like I said, there, I, I used to be Prince Rupert used to always send me tickets. Say, I'd never pay for these. They're too ridiculous. <laughs> and to me, it's old guys. But once again, they are entertaining. And the thought that, it, you know, Mick used to be pissed at me because I was six months younger than him. So, you know, he, <laughs> you know, it's, how come, you know, and they'd always get me when you talk about the age. Yeah. Me being a little bit younger used to get them really upset. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I and get then also getting a percentage. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I think everybody works on flats now, but um, you know, it's, I, I always get a kick out of every tour. I try to take somebody new who's never seen them um, and just watch them have their mind blown by, uh, by these men who, who, who again, should not be able to do, who should not be able to conjure what they're able to conjure. It's, it's, it's really, I get a kick out of it. Uh, it's the music. It's the music. Yeah. By the way, the that's an interesting thing. I got to, you know, we started out by you saying it, my thing about music. I, once again, accountant, numbers, that's about as close. But in that thing, I had my daughter turned out to be a music teacher and heavy music. My grandson produces and engineers music now is writing his own stuff. I don't know whether it gets into your blood or into your brain or somehow when you're out on the road. But bottom line is now influence music played a big part in the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, take me through the rest of the 69 tour then. I think, you know. A lot of us, um, we know how and where it ended. Uh, before we get to the East Bay area uh, in December, um, talk to me a little bit about that tour. I mean, it was such a, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's so mythologized in music legend and in the Stones, uh, in the Stones story. Um, so you raise the money, you hustle the 150 grand, you build the production. You've got what, Ike and Tina Turner, B.B. King? B.B. Uh, King, yeah, I love B.B. King. And Chuck Berry was on some of the dates. And, and so, I, I mean, I blur them all because I go back to 65, I go back to the vibrations and Patti LaBelle and, and all those others that are all part of it. Uh, but yeah, no, the biggest one was Ike and Tina and B.B. King and Chuck Berry on the fill-in. So there was somebody else too that was with us, but once again, it blurs. Well, that one of the super fans remind <laughs> us. So 
the tour heads out. How did it go? Okay. Once you get into the tour, I've never been at war, but I would assume it's like being at war. All of a sudden, you're enclosed in this little group of people, and you're traveling en masse, you know, but we were an army traveling. We had our advance men and all the crew that had to move ahead and get to the date before us. We had to then come in, and it was a a small group on the 69th tour. It's funny, Ethan did a great book. Ethan Russell did a great book on it, and like there were 16 of us that ran that whole tour in effect. I mean, with the Stones as part of it, it was just me and then the representative of the Stones. And, and now when you look at these giant productions, it was just me and my house and, the, and a few people working and we had a plane and we traveled. That was about it. But There's we more go, than 16 family members <laughs> out now. <laughs> I mean, like I said, now when I look at it, just right, the catering is probably more than we had on the entire tour. But as it was, it was, so it was a great little cocoon of people that would travel. We would just go from date to date. Pick, I would have to go in the box off, collect the money. There'd be crowds of fans. It would be a battle getting into the venue. It'd be a battle getting out of the venue, getting to the plane, flying out, going to, that's all it was. It was just moving to date to date. We'd have a few days that we could relax every now and then where we would have a day off at the hotel. And then we would get together as groups. We would usually do things together, go horseback riding or, I mean, but the thing is, I forgot a lot of it. Fans send me pictures to remind me. One fan sent me a picture from July 1966, Katie. She sends a picture saying, oh, is this you guys by the hotel swimming pool? And it was pictures of all of us hanging by the pool, Brian, Keith. You know, like, it's so great that people have these things. And to this day, I get pictures from people of events I wasn't even aware of. Anyhow. The tour just rumbled on as we were going, and things were happening on the way. The most important thing that I could stress is, let me bring it to the magic time was when we were in New York and we were going to be doing, when you perform in L.A., that's special because of the L.A. press and the different L.A. people. New York is a whole different ball game at Madison Square Garden. And when the Stones were coming in to do Madison Square Garden, what people don't know beforehand, and one thing that I might straighten out is, I met with David Mazels, David and Albert Mazels, the day, Thanksgiving Day, the day before we were going to be doing Madison, because the Stones wanted to film a few of their songs to promote the European tour that was going to happen afterwards in 1970, right after the U.S. tour. So they wanted to film a couple of the songs, and that's all. And I was hired, I was told to go find a director and, you know, sound man to shoot, and cameraman to shoot the two or three songs for the promotion. And as fate all turned out, I got the Mazels, David and Albert Mazels. They met me and they said they were going to go check it out. And the day that they were going to shoot Madison Square Garden to get those songs, I signed the deal with them just to shoot those songs for 20 grand. That was it. So there's a lot of books that say we had deals at the beginning of the tour. There's people that, no, no. The deal with the Mazels was first done for four songs at the Thanksgiving. After the Madison Square Garden show, we were waiting to hear if we were going to go to Miami. They were going to be paying us 100 grand to go to Miami. We were waiting on that. They got the okay. The money was in the bank. So we sat on a tarmac for six hours waiting to go to Miami. Go to Miami, do the show in horrible conditions. Once again, it was freezing, cold at night, raining, miserable. Most of the fans had already left from this festival. But Mick and Keith said, no, no, we're performing, even with lightning and all this, because the fans stayed for us. So once again, love them for doing that always. So they performed, and then they went to Muscle Shoals. And meanwhile, this free concert had been building, which I was always against. (laughs) 
And that's a whole other story. But bottom line, that was the 69 tour. We came up, we did Miami, and the tour was over. The Stones are going to go to Muscle Shoals to make some phenomenal music. And that was the end of it as far as we were concerned at that time. Yeah. All right. So we have to go. Uh, we have to go west um, because we'd be remiss if we didn't. Um, so I guess early in the tour, the story as I understand it, is Mick sort of, there was a lot of pressure on the band because as you mentioned, they were getting criticized for, you know, the people um, were demanding free music and the ticket prices, the 850 ticket price was somehow unreasonable. By the way, there was, the 850 wasn't the ticket price, it was 750. All of this <laughs> was started by the press, no offense, uh, but it was basically Ralph Gleason started the whole thing. And it was all, you know, once again, they picked up on, oh, yeah, what are you going to talk about? We want to sell, oh, let's complain about the Stones over. We weren't overpricing. I had the newspaper clippings that show that the tickets in Oakland and San Francisco were $7.50. So bottom line was that was all just said to dramatize. And Bill Graham was really pissed because I wouldn't do a deal with him at the way he wanted it. So once again, that might be all those things. One never knows, but it was a newspaper article that started it. And the guys on the West Coast were pushing the stones to come out and do a free concert. Yeah, and, and sort of contributed to an environment where whether or not the band thought it was a good idea, they were, they were sort of susceptible to whatever was in the air. Yeah. There's sort of the shuttle diplomacy of Rock Scully and I guess Sam Cutler's involved. And there's all these different characters who are talking about the notion of a free show, but ultimately is it in your lap? Like, does it fall to you to have to deal with the details? No. And originally I had no part. I didn't, I wasn't for it. And it was just all talk. And there's been a zillion times I've heard talks about festivals and concerts. They were pushing this once again, because it was also the Grateful Dead. All this was coming out of the Grateful Dead office. Emmett Grogan, Rock Scully, the Grateful Dead. And who later on, Sam Cutler went to manage. So yeah, he did tours. So that was a small society. It wasn't the Stones. It was them organizing this to begin with. And they wanted to do a giant free concert of which the Stones were supposed to be one of the acts. You know, we can get into all the detail, you know, rather than some, the thing that I always felt was that the Stones always got screwed over by the press because it was West Coast press that wanted to build up the West Coast. Because remember, you had Woodstock earlier, and the East Coast was getting all that drive, Richie, all the things from the West Coast bands. The West Coast now wanted to do the same thing. That was a whole other entertainment industry over there, technically. And so they were trying to build that up, and it was going to be built with a free concert, you know, with all the different West Coast bands. That's how it was all pitched to me. I had nothing. It was a free concert. I'm a money guy. Why would I go? I had nothing to do with it until they called me when I was doing the accounting for the end of the 60s and said, Ron, could you come out here? we got a problem. We need you to negotiate. We've got another venue, the new venue, because the Golden Gate Park fell through is Sears Point Raceway. It's owned by Filmsways. Would you come out and do a deal from them? They just want to, you know, sign some papers to guarantee that nothing's wrong. And that's how I got involved. Yeah. Were you there? Well, I was flown out. I, I went out there two days before. And the day, and I got in there and I sat down in the hotel to meet with the guys from Filmways, Dick St. John. And when I sat and met with Dick St. John, 
uh, he, we started out with how great this is a freak. It was all in a hotel lobby and all, you know, in the little room. So everybody's all around us. And bottom line is the free concert was going to cost the Stones about $300,000 and rights they didn't have. So the end result was I just said, there's no deal. We, I thought it was coming in to negotiate a $6,000 lease and that was it. And it turned out, oh no, 100000 for cleanup, 100000 for anything else possibly that might happen. And, and then film rights for a film that we didn't even have. So I said no and walked away happily. But then when I walked away, everything was happening. Everybody was still trying to make an event happen. The only thing I got involved with is I wanted to sue Filmways for wasting my time to have to come out there. If they're saying it's a $6,000 deal, turns into a $300,000. To me, it was not proper negotiating and I wanted to sue them. And that's when I ended up getting uh, Melvin Belli our PR guy said, oh, use Melvin Belli. He's a big PR guy. And that's how we got Belli to be our thing. And I was originally suing Filmways for $11 million. And that's how all Belli got involved. And Belli was promoting it to try and make another event. And he was, he was definitely a lawyer who was a showman. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess to a certain extent, you guys are going into somebody else's home turf, right? Like you have to negotiate I don't mean literally negotiate, I mean, navigate the local power structure. Who's the local, you know, who's the power broker? Who's the big shot attorney? Who, who's the landowners? And I would imagine that doesn't, doesn't provide clarity in the moment. No. And well, not only that, when we were doing that negotiation, there was another point just slipped me. It was with, when we had, when I had the, the lawyers and all that, the end result was there was not going to be a concert. Then the, then the, what's his name came up, my mind's going to, I'm thinking too far ahead. Let's get back. I'll recenter. Okay, sorry. I was thinking <laughs> all the way to the guy and all these different things. So where, where should we start? Sorry. Well, about that. I think, you know, I don't, I don't want to belabor Altamont too much because so, so much has been talked about it. And, but, you know, it's, just, I, I would feel remiss to not talk, to not, you know, to not cover it at all. Oh, well, let me I, then interrupt because I remember what it is. What I wanted to say was, remember, the stones didn't come there till the day before. Now, yeah. the thing that always got me, like I said, it wasn't until the Wall Street Journal came out with the whole analysis that they realized the Stones never hired the Hells Angel. It took 50 years for people to admit this. I've been screaming about it forever. I would have negotiated that deal. Never, ever happened in a million years. But the only thing I remember that I was brought in as a, I did all drugs except LSD. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I was brought out to the Grateful Dead's farm to be able to be part of all that negotiation of what they were trying to meet, my biggest fear was getting dosed. <laughs> that was my fear the whole time. I didn't care about a concert or anything else. I was just afraid that I'd lose my mind with these lunatics who would be happy to dose you and say, ah, we got you. You know, it's bad enough as my mind was. So, you know, meanwhile, all the confluence of events that brought about it, the thing that always got me was the press afterwards had nobody, they couldn't blame the Grateful Dead people people who were really involved in doing the whole thing because that's their bread and butter. That's all. So they blamed the Stones who left town. So I always sat there and said, why? You know, nobody used any logic. Everybody for 50 years, I had to listen to the Rolling Stones. What a dumb thing hiring the Hells Angels. No, it's a dumb thing thinking they did. So that was yeah. it. Well, I think that's an interesting point that if they, if there had been a negotiation, you would have done it. And based on the book, I would say you'd probably have some documentation of it as well. <laughs> as a side question, did, did you hire Sam? Did you bring Sam into the band's world, or how did that all come together? Well, this, the band no, the band had used him when they did the, the thing in, in London, where they, they had the thing for Brian. 
oh, when, Hyde they Park, did, yeah. when they did Hyde Park for Brian, that's when I think Sam was there. And, and he was, what happens is when I told uh, Mick, when I told Mick, I got to hear that my uncle says it's okay for me to do the tour, it's okay. The person that called me was Sam Cutler saying he was with the Stones now. And the bottom line is the Stones said, go, you know, my uncle gave approval, I could go do it. But I also had to make it seem like it came out of his office. So all these things came from Sam. All the people involved with the tour, actually, except for John James, directly came from the Stones hiring them. And John came because of a recommendation to Chip from some other people, because John supposedly, John, who if anybody knows, is one of the, was a giant con man who nearly got me killed. But the end result was he basically came because he was doing promotions for Chrysler, and he said he could deliver Chrysler cars on the tour. Well... The John James story is such, it's one that I feel like it's really only surfaced in the last few years between your book and Sam talks about him a little bit in his book. Still very much scratching his head, though. I don't think Sam, it, I don't think it had ever really been pieced together for him. But I, I would like to leave the majority of that story for people to read in your book because it is <laughs> such a great kicker. But it, it is there, an, is there enough or is there an anecdote? Is there something you could talk about with the John James situation that, um, that won't give it all away? Well, the only thing that I could say is meeting a con man, you learn things from a con man. Unfortunately, most of America is dealing with a con man now. It'll take a while for them to understand that. But when you meet a con man, you, you understand that. So I usually can spot them. When I came out to L.A., I spotted two of them right away that made national attention. So, you know, the first one actually brought me to a movie meeting and in the meeting he was turning around and he said, oh, well, Ron's delivered 50 million for me as if that would be make me happy saying I'm a guy who can deliver 50 million. So I, of course, at the meeting said, no, I never delivered. What are you talking about? And this guy blew up right then and there. And the bottom line is, and then one woman was trying to bring in another con man who I noticed and it turned out he had ripped her off for $25,000 and she brought him in to her friends because he said that the next person he ripped off, he, she'd pay, he'd pay her back. So that's the mindset of some people. The end result is, uh, unless you've met a con man, this is a lesson. It's dangerous. You know, after yeah. the tour and after all this stuff, John James was still around. I, I have a friend of mine who called me about oh, maybe 10 years later and said, Ron, I'm in this meeting with this guy and he's dropping the names of the Stones and everybody. And I said, what's his? He said, John James. I said, get out of there. Oh, John Ellsworth, he was using. I said, get out of the room, leave immediately. And, you know, he was, <laughs> it was scary. He was, at a, he was at a meeting also to try and do Diana Ross's special in New York. It's like, these guys are just scary. He ripped off uh, the United Children's Fund and, and President... Uh, it was just horrible stuff. <laughs> Anyhow. Insane. Yeah. So um, the events at Altamont unfurl. Gimme Shelter gets made. What's the last six to 12 months of your involvement with the band? Well, how, then, how does your time with them come to an end? Okay. Well, first of all, Gimme Shelter came about in a weirder way than it's not like there was a plan. Gimme Shelter started with those four songs that the Maisels would record. And then the Maisels asked, Ronnie, can we go to Muscle Shoals to watch the Stones? And then they got that footage in Muscle Shoals, which is phenomenal footage. And then they said, well, the free concerts, can we fly there? And that, so that's how it started. And then on a plane back from 
Altamont is David said, listen, I think we'll have a film out of this. And that's how we started doing the film. They didn't even know they had the murder then. And Mick didn't want the murder. As a little side note, Mick never wanted the murder in the film. All these people want, want to think that's all. No, no, none of that happened. Mick hated that. Thought it was a bad thing to be referenced with the Stones. But afterwards, so months go by, and I was actually working on Give Me Shelter at the time. I was asked to come to Europe and do the European tour, the 1970 European tour, even though I didn't speak any foreign languages. You know, I have a rough time with English. So it turns around that they had me do the European tour. And after that, coming back to do Give Me Shelter. And after that, we just phased out. I was still involved with them with the uh, film, but I wasn't going to be touring anymore. And they went off to France and started getting a little too drug oriented. And, and luckily, I think I got out of it in time for me. I probably wouldn't have lasted through all of that. Keith is another kind of animal. So that was it. <laughs> Did your, um, was it? amicable did it just end one day did it just drift apart like was there a meeting where you guys agreed to disagree like how, how does it end oh it, it ends because i'm in miami and my phone book was stolen and i had lost all my contact numbers and usually the only person i was after in touch with after that was rupert but you know we all moved on and it was like the past and you you know you don't go back to your it was basically that's it anytime i see i used to i when i they'd get me i'd go to see the tours i would you know see the events when i was in la i went to the highwood bowl which was when i'd go to those you know different rattlesnake lounge i'd do all these different little things and whoever i saw always great hi how are you and that was it charlie i could talk to but it was to me those were the days it's kind of like now i look at the stones now no offense guys but i look at the stones now as a pickup band it's not the guys i knew that were the stones it's like you know i know they're great and all the other things with ronnie wood and all this but i'm still brian and and uh, you know the mick taylor so it's uh, that's how I look at the life and it all changed and life moved on and never looked back. That was it. And, and you lose um, touch. You know, I, I'm not the same guy as I was then as they are now. And where did your career go? What did you, did you leave music and pivot entirely into film or? I became a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> what I decided after the stones was that I only wanted to work with people that I wanted to help out. I only wanted to work with friends, which is a dangerous things to do. So I worked with, yeah, I helped out some people with trust fund babies. I helped people that had too much money. I tried to help out a lot of people that, I could help out, you know, and making record deals or all these. Yeah, I got people would bring me to do festivals. They'd say, Ron, come in, we'll pay five grand. Take a look at our festival. And it was very easy because they'd say, well, what do you think? With security the way it is, you can't do it. So it was easy to say no and make five grand usually to do those. But I went and did that. I did a couple of films. But life just went on. I just, my friend said a rock and roll bus business, land yachts. I, life just went on with me doing individual little deals for helping people and, you know, making films and getting a piece of the films. And that was it. Wow. So um, what do you do now? Well, the funny thing was after all this, I never, I figured that I would eventually, eventually write a book about it when I was in prison. <laughs> I figured I'd buy time in prison. That was it because I knew a lot of dangerous people. So the end result was when that didn't happen, you know, about a few years later, and when I hit 69, I said, well, I'm 69 now. What did I do last time? It was 69, year 69. <laughs> so I decided to write a book because I started seeing all these stories come out from people that proposed or purported to know what they were talking about, about the stones and all these experts that weren't even born then. And I started to see all this malarkey, all these stories that had no basis of truth at all. I mean, it was just ridiculous things from people that were knowledgeable too. 
be amazed at some of them. So I said, well, before I forget, and after I found that I had boxes of all the documents that documented all the things that happened, because you can't trust your memory after 50 years, I had all the documents that would refresh the memory. I was able to go ahead and write a book. And then they're now talking about doing a movie of the book, which is even more funny to me. <laughs> it's so oh, weird. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about the documents. It's, it's, it's so amazing to go back and look at some of that stuff. Some of it, it's just, um, there's a simplicity. Some of it that is just, you know, you don't get that in a, in a, in a contract these days in the modern music business, but it's amazing to, um, to, to read the show deals and to read some of the correspondence around the film were you a pack rat or is it just this was because you ran the tour? It was basically your office. So you held everything like how did you come to have this trope? Well, because I it was my office. I ran everything in my bedroom, you know, and everything out of it to this day. And, and it was just lucky. I mean, I threw out tons of stuff and a lot of it got destroyed. I had collections of all the records from the UK and US that all got ruined in a flood. I mean, so the end result is I went in, I totally forgot I had these boxes and I pulled them out of storage and I started to go through them. And then I found all of the things that I had. It's not so much a pack rat is that luckily I kept the right things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, do you have a legacy in the music business? Is your legacy? Give me shelter. Is your legacy 69 tour? Do you think that way? I, the way I think is, how will I look at all of this when I'm dead? And at the end, when I'm dead, it won't mean anything to me. So, no, I, I don't care about any of that. To me, I'm a creature of what is today now. And then I hope for tomorrow because fate's always been interesting in the way these things work out. You know, you can't tell. Who would have ever predicted a pandemic? That's why I don't predict anything. Just know it, just adjust to whatever's happening. That's a true survivor. Just adjust. Yeah. This too shall be over one way or another. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the things I thought was super fascinating was very early in your book, you talk about sort of coming to that mindset as a relatively young person, you know, 11 or 12 years, pre-adolescent, really, uh, sort of thinking about existential issues and then sort of consciously deciding not to, that, they, that it's sort of an unwinnable argument with yourself. So why not just deal with what's right in front of you and make the most of it? I think that's, a, well, that, that was that's pretty damn healthy. Yeah, well, that was it. I, I remember when I said at the time, I remembered I was always depressed because I was always going crazy. I was intelligent. And I said, gee, if you're intelligent, you see all this suffering and misery. Why should you bother living if no matter what, you're going to die? So, you know, nothing changes. You die, so die now or die. Anyhow, so I was always concerned that I was going to kill myself. And then one day, like, I was in a shower and I started dreaming and a poem came to me and it was basically that I was falling down a well and then I had a choice to fall down the well or grab on and hang on and not fall. And then I decided that, hey, you might as well just fall and let it happen. So that's what happened. I just said, no reason to try and affect life and try and do all these things. You can't win. So I realized, okay, I'm just going to live. And now let's see what happens. And this is where it brought me to now. I would have never, first of all, I thought I was going to be dead at 36. The life I was living, drugs and all those, I for sure I wasn't going to make it past my mid-30s. So here I am, 76, and I had to fill that time somehow. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you have a special filter on Zoom or whatever, but uh, you're a very youthful 76 in mind, body, and spirit. I have these two paintings in my closet that age of Mick and Keith. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that they might have one of you. <laughs> um Ron, thank you so much for, for, for spending time and, uh, and sharing some stories. And thank you so much for writing the book. I'm looking forward to getting through the rest of it. And I'm going to do that in the next couple of days. Um, but thank you 
so much. My pleasure. My pleasure, Lawrence. And I love what you're doing. You should keep all this alive. So important. And so <laughs> important. We have to remember where we came from. And uh, maybe I'll get you back someday and we could, uh, we could talk about the Beatles and some other fun stuff. Oh, yes. The Beatles, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, I would love to go there. Thank you, Ronnie Schneider. I am so grateful for your time. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you like to get your podcasts from. Please keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.